newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project is underway. A half-hour commentary and analysis on the issues confronting news media in recent days, and we thank you for joining us. I'm Rex Smith with Rosemary Armeo and Barbara Lombardo and the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, Alan Shartok himself. And we are here to talk to you about some media issues, we hope. So, Alan, let me start with you because you are, in fact, a genuine expert on New York State politics. And let's just do a little New York moment here. Eric Adams is the new mayor of New York City. He came to Albany to try to get his crime agenda passed. It is said that he will be successful as mayor if he can reduce the crime rate in the city. He got nothing, basically, from the legislature. And he comes back and scolds the news organizations. He says it is because... He's a black mayor, and he has gotten bad coverage as a result of that. What do you think about that? Well, I don't agree with it. I I mean, I read the papers every day, usually about 1 a.m. in the morning when they first come out. And I can tell you that I see an awful lot about Eric Adams. When all else fails, play the race card, maybe that's it. But maybe he really genuinely feels people should be more respectful, you know, of him and and that the newspapers should cover him in a better way. I've worked for a number of politicians, and I have seldom seen one who said, God, I love those newspapers. (laughs) (laughs) They do a great job for me, and you don't see it. So I'm not surprised. It's nothing new. The exact quote from Eric Adams is, I'm a black man that's the mayor, but my story is being interpreted by people that don't look like me. Rosemary? Well, he's not wrong that there needs to be more diversity in the news media. We're not surprised by that. We think it ourselves. We have for the 40 years I've been in the business. I know we've been talking about doing better and have never quite achieved it. However, the mayor's problem is that black legislative leaders don't like his policies. Not that he's being misinterpreted by white reporters. It's people who look just like him and we're saying, nah, we don't like your ideas. And he's taking out his frustrations on the media, which is not a method that ever works for any politician. So he should cut it out. You know, Rosemary, when this is a regular occurrence that the mayors always come up right. with, quote, their tin cup in hand. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they never get what they want. Obviously, they, they want more. Now, New York City certainly puts more into the pot than the rest of the upstate area does. And so the mayor of New York is always at odds with the legislature, although more and more now the legislature is in the hands of the New York City folks. Yeah, the legislature and the city government of New York are all in the hands of blacks and New Yorkers. So what's his problem? This is not about identity. This is about a disagreement over bail reform and other criminal justice reforms. Let's make sure, Rex, that we send a copy of this show to the mayor. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. Now, Barbara, so Rosemary made the point that he's not wrong in his saying, as the mayor said, how many blacks are on editorial boards? How many blacks determine how these stories are being written? You were the editor of a newspaper owned by Gannett, which has had significant 
efforts to diversify their newsrooms for years. And that's difficult, isn't it? It is difficult. So the criticism is valid in that we don't have the people in there, that we don't have diverse newsrooms. And why is that? Why is that? I think that in small towns, in small cities even, which you would experience even on the Times Union's level mm-hmm. in Albany, that there are opportunities for minorities to work in more interesting, lively, bigger, challenging places and make more money because mm-hmm. they are in demand. And if you have a family, do you want to bring a family? Do you want to work somewhere where there are no other people or very few other people who look like you? I think that is the crux of the problem. And the, the difficulty, uh, I used to go to workshops, in fact, when I was the editor of the Times Union, on specifically aimed at helping editors figure out a, how to diversify their workforce, and B, how to cover many diverse communities, Asians, East Asians, Native Americans. And it's always been difficult. Finding people who are willing to come to Albany, New York, to be reporters, actually just finding reporters uh, is these days right. difficult. And, you know, it's depressing because it hasn't gotten any better yes. in the decades since I started at the paper and probably before. I, I had a publisher who was black and... We used uh, to be on this show all the time, Monty yeah, Trammer. Yeah, How about that? <laughs> and was there for 10 or 12 years and had said at one time that he and his wife would not have stayed in Saratoga if they had children. Hmm. What do you know? Well, I guess that would be a factor. You, we, I was just uh, hearing an NPR report on how people are congregating to people who are like themselves politically. You know, state blue states are getting bluer and red states redder. And I think that's probably true racially, right? Well, well you know, Rex, you said you went to these um, conferences and workshops. Conferences, mm-hmm. right. But you didn't tell us what they told you. Ah, you know, the most interesting one was there were probably eight or ten editors gathered in Fort Worth, Texas, for workshops led by a couple of distinguished black journalists on actually archetypes, which sounds very close to stereotype, but it was on the ways that we should understand personality types as race and ethnicity go so that we could better cover those people and better attract people to our newsrooms. And it was really instructive. I was next to the managing editor of the Washington Post, and here's the editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer, both cities with significant black population, black majority in the case of D.C. And yet those newsrooms struggle, as mine did, at trying to find journalists of color. It is a difficult thing, and it has actually gotten worse, I think, in yeah, recent I remember. I remember reading mm-hmm. resumes, and you look for clues in the resumes right. that this might be a minority applicant. Yes, and if they it, have NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists, correct. or NAHJ. Though you don't have to be... Uh, I hired a reporter named Santo who had NAHJ on her resume. I thought she was Hispanic. Actually, if it said Santos, it would have been. Santo was Italian. <laughs> but she was a member of NEHJ. There are several Italian journalists who have gotten jobs because of that little mistake. Said Ms. Armeo, yes. No, I, I'm not one of them. I got them because I was a woman. They wanted to hire women to, uh-huh. to ward off the phase that I was going into it. But didn't it make a difference in newsrooms to have it, more women? It made a big difference in women, difference in the way things were covered. And it would make a big difference if we had more minority, not just... I I think the problem is that you need more black publishers, as you're talking about. I had a black managing editor in Cleveland. That made a big difference. He just knew different people. He knew different stories. He knew different ways of looking at things. 
But in other places I worked, you'd bring in lots of black and Hispanic reporters and then assign them the same kinds of stories of interest to white readers that we would give to any reporter. And they got discouraged by that. And I watched it. So what stories are we missing by having a monochromatic newsrooms? It's not the Eric Adams story. <laughs> yeah, we're covering Eric Adams, yeah, right? He's, he's or they are covered. who he's there. I learned something from you a long time ago, Rex, when you said if you have a black reporter, it makes a difference when you send that black reporter out into a black neighborhood, the kind of response to the stories that you're covering. I think that's what you said. I think that's absolutely true. You you know, in Saratoga, there's an ongoing issue right now having to do with the relationship between the community and the police and Black Lives Matter. And there are no minority reporters working there, as far as I know. And, you know, is it being covered through, uh, to use Eric Adams' phrase, you know, our prism, the white person's prism, which tends to be more institutional and more believing of government? Hmm. I think if we could identify fully the stories that we're missing because we don't have enough black representation and Hispanic and any other minority in our newsrooms, it wouldn't be such a major problem. We'd just go out and do them. It would be harder for white reporters, but we would just go and do it. It's just like if you create a new beat, if you create a beat on housing, suddenly there's a billion stories about housing because you have someone who's looking at it. If you do a beat on malls like the Orange County Register famously did in the 90s, suddenly there were a billion stories about shopping malls. So if you bring a black reporter and if you bring a Hispanic reporter in a place that's never had one, you're getting new voices and new ideas. And that's what is missing. You're right. It isn't the Eric Adams coverage of a black politician. They get covered just fine. It's these stories, the missing stories, the texture, the real feel for life of black or other minorities living in our communities that are missing from our papers. We go in there and there's a big crime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you asked Alan about who should cover what type of story, and we've had mm-hmm. that kind of discussion. I know at the Albany Student Press, there was some discussion about it's Black History Month. And if a reporter, you know, a student who's going to write a story about it, should the student be black or does it matter? I don't know how that ended up getting resolved. Well, I would think that if it wasn't a black student, at least somebody covering it should have been black. You can't say that a white person, I think, can't. I mean, some of that is the similar argument to should trans characters in the movies be portrayed by anybody other than a trans actor? Uh, You know, uh, Native Americans were always portrayed by white people wearing makeup as opposed to actually giving jobs to not always. Actors. There was Tonto, Jay Silverheels. <laughs> oh. Or even authors, Rex. American yeah. Dirt. Can a gringa write about Hispanic immigration? Is that fair game? And I find it really dangerous to make any kind of rules about that. And the truth is, if you had a really diverse newsroom, you'd put both reporters on. Because really, yeah. race relations are about two races, not just one. Mm-hmm. And it would be great to have two points of view. But, but the truth also is, Rosemary, you make very good points, is that We have tried very hard to make sure that we can recruit as diverse a population at this radio station as possible. It's very hard. It is, and I think that we would be, as media people, more critical of other organizations for their lack of diversity than we are publicly of ourselves. Yes, that's definitely true, as we are publicly of ourselves. And you see the diversity efforts that are underway with respect to, say, hiring a college president or an executive. And we write about that sort of thing in the media. But really, in fact, I'll tell you this, the American Society of Newspaper Editors, now called News Leaders Association, always conducted a diversity survey and they would ask you to fill out the forms on what is your newsroom population 
And as my newsroom shrank during the 18 mm. years that I was the editor of the Times Union, my newsroom constricted as the face of journalism changed, my numbers got worse. And I actually stopped filling out the census, as did all the other editors. It's interesting. They ended up giving up the census last wow. year, I think, because editors were simply not cooperating because the numbers were just too embarrassing. So there's a little admission of guilt. But what you have to do, I think, if you're hiring, and this is true not only in journalism but anywhere, you have to insist on finding diverse candidates. Not that you're always going to hire for diversity, but there have to be candidates who are people of color and used to be women. Now most of the reporters coming to you are, in fact, women. Most newsrooms are predominantly women, I think. So how come? Why is it so hard? In other words, you put out a thing, you definitely want minority candidates to show up. You don't get them, but they do get them at the New York Times and at the Washington Post and other places. So in other words... Barbara what? already gave the answer. Journalism is a hard, yucky job with terrible hours, and in most places, other than those outlets you were naming now that yeah. actually get people horrible pay. Yeah. So why, in a society where, as you mentioned, other industries and fields are actively seeking minorities and promising them cushy perks and great hours and an actual steady paycheck. Why would they choose journalism? Even the whites in it get no respect. You know, we are disliked. We are disbelieved. It's a terrible job. <laughs> that, but you got to love it. But we, but we, we love it, but there's something wrong with us. And Rosemary and I are both yes, teaching at UAlbany, and I can speak for my students this semester, so maybe 15, 18 students, and this is consistent in the last few years. Maybe a third of them are actually interested. These are journalism majors. Yeah, not even. Maybe, maybe mm. three or four right. are interested in journalism, and some of the best ones are not interested in journalism. Definitely not. Yeah, I, I have it's the same experience. So are you saying, are you saying, uh, I want to make sure I get this, that the people who you'd like to recruit who have minority status are not showing up because they have better jobs to go to? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Anything is better. <laughs> But it's not. It's a wonderful profession. It is. It's a I wonderful love it. thing. I, I can't imagine. I even tried others and, and always came back. And American when, when needs people, journalists. When people, you know? leave, when people leave and they come back years later and they say, that was my most fun job ever. They mm -hmm. say now that they're paying a mortgage and they, <laughs> yeah. have, a they have a car that runs. Rosemary, you were, of course, everybody in this room has done this. You've all had to hire and you all have the same needs that I've been talking about, which is that we really want to make sure uh, that we have a, a diverse newsroom. How did you do it? Well, I've had some luck going to reporters or other staffers on the paper, minority staffers, and saying, okay, who can we go after? And they would have friends or associates or schoolmates, and you would recruit them. And I always tried to make sure that they had an open door to me and to at least mid-level management I could provide and that they would have a hearing. I totally loved and accepted all their ideas. I encouraged staffers to write the way they talked, which we so lose in our papers. What do you mean? Is that true? Have one staffer. Yeah, oh, my God. So she was wonderful. Like, she would come in, a young reporter, and she would come in and she would, okay, I have the best story. And she would be acting it out. We'd be hysterical, laughing, asking her questions, totally engaged. And then she'd write it, and it would be staid, dull school writing. 
you know, because mm-hmm. we've trained kids, this is how we write. And I had to free her to say, no, I want your voice in Well, how here. did you free her? I was the editor, so I could no, let but yeah, so you, so you her write it. Say, I made how, her rewrite how would you say it? And then they write it the way they would say it. Yeah. Then you might have to fine tune a little bit of it, but it becomes more conversational, normal, a normal person talking. Nobody right. ever actually says, Alan, then the individual exited the vehicle. <laughs> That's the way cops talk, and police reporters often mimic that in their writing, exited the vehicle who says that you know mm-hmm. he fell out of the car and you know if our language in our newspapers or especially in our broadcast coverage reflected that how much more interesting that would be for and how much more understandable well, 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 wait wait but what if it was improper english you well, know, words, clean it well up. actually, yeah. that's getting really interesting yeah. right now. We have a big debate in this country about using black English. What do we call it now? African American. Are you talking about? Well, you're not talking I'm about Aquafina. No, oh, well, oh. We, no, we, we used to call it Ebonics. That's uh-huh. out now. We don't uh-huh. say that anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's African American vernacular. And Aquafina, who's the U Albany alum, who's now a former a Times star. Union intern. Yes, yes. she's mm-hmm. awesome. Journalism major. She's in trouble because she is Asian from New York City, but she's always used kind of, she sounds like a black teenager when she talks or when she sings. Can you give us an example? Uh, oh, no, I cannot. No. It would be no, not I rated cannot. for public television. I'm not radio, as a white person going to imitate black language, nor am I going to say any of the words she says in her songs. But <laughs> those people out there who know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. So she's in trouble because that's seen as appropriating a language not her own. Right. And also because she code switches. Do you know what that mm-hmm. is? This is I lovely. Don't. Yeah. Sorry. Code switches is when you act one way with one set of people and a different way with someone else. So Aquafina talks like a black teenager among her peers, even among us, her teachers, her fans, definitely. And now she's up for a Golden Globes and she is talking like, you know, an English professor. And people resent that. Her fans resent that. She came out and apologized and said she's trying to learn. I find the whole thing really very interesting, and it does have a bearing on how we write stories and present news. What is the language of our newscast? I don't mind code switching. I understand. When I was growing up, there was in the Black Hills of South Dakota, the most famous Native American there at the time was a guy named Ben Black Elk, who was the son of the great Sioux, we used to say medicine man, the great Sioux spiritualist Black Elk, whom John Neidhart wrote about, the uh, Nebraska historian. I'm getting a little bit far afield here, but Ben Black Elk was the man who sat at the base of Mount Rushmore dressed in traditional Sioux warrior costumes, and people took their picture with him and would give him money. He wouldn't ask for it, but people would just tip him after their children sat on his lap. Uh, Here's a genuine Indian who they sat with. Ben Black Elk, when it was not summertime, was an assistant professor of English at Black Hill State College. But of course, sitting there, he didn't sound like an English professor. He looked good, and it's not as though he mimicked the Indian dialogue from movies of the time, which was quite offensive. But anyway, I I don't think that it is for us to tell somebody what is the appropriate way for a black person to speak or for an Asian person to comport themselves in their Asian community, but it sure is wonderful when in the journalism world we actually convey that, when somebody actually writes it in a way that people can hear it yes, or sir. see it. That's really yes, true. It's really true. Gives it authenticity. And I think it's also good that we're just open to this. We used to insist our style books reflect this, that this is the only way you write it. And it was a straitjacket. It was definitely white-centered. And now, you know, pronouns are out the window. Man, I don't even teach pronouns anymore because I don't know what they are. And Yeah, and words that used to be slang or improper are now routinely used, woke being a good example. 
And it makes the writing, it makes the journalism fresher and more reflective of life. Good. Okay, well, that's um, interesting. If you folks listening would like to share your thoughts on this, media at wamc.org is how you reach us by email, media at wamc.org. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo, and Rex Smith here with the Media Project. By the way, just a little mark of the times, how things are changing. Report comes now that nearly a quarter of Americans get news from podcasts, mostly younger Americans. But if they often get news, it's just 7%. But when you say, do you ever get any news from podcasts, nearly a quarter. And the thing that's interesting is that I remember, probably it's been now 15 years ago, when the percentage of Americans who got news online was about a quarter. And now, of course, everybody who gets news gets it digitally. They will say, yeah, I get some news digitally. So watch for podcasts. That's rising. Right. And the definition of podcast is interesting, too, because, you know, everything on this radio station ends up as a podcast. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that at one point we thought a podcast was something disparate floating on the sea out there. But now it's getting integrated with everything that your newspapers have done and are doing and that the radio stations are doing. Why wouldn't you? Right. I think. Right. What I found interesting in a story about that was that people, regardless of race and regardless of political affiliation, the numbers were pretty level for that interest in podcasts so that it wasn't one group yeah. over another. However, the more highly educated you are, the more likely you were. The use is pretty young people also were likely to yeah. use it more. Yeah. Because they don't out. have to say, what's a podcast? How <laughs> <laughs> do, do I get that? Yeah, they don't. <laughs> or when they what's advertise, however you, and then listen to us, however you <laughs> find your podcast. Yeah. It's like, don't yeah. tell me how to find it. <laughs> <laughs> what we're, can you do? We're showing our dinosaur ship. <laughs> yeah. I know how to do it now. Speaking <laughs> of uh, dinosaur ship, just to further mm. track before we go on to the next topic, newspaper circulation, America's top 25 newspapers, the 25 largest newspapers over the last two years have lost 30% of their print sales. Print is no longer... There are only 25 newspapers now that have more than 100,000 circulation. There used to be more than 100. I remember because mine was right about number 100 at just over 100,000 circulation. So this is really interesting. Print is no longer, of course, the dominant form of communication for any of those major titles. You always said that this was coming, Rex. You told us it would happen, and now it's happening. Yeah, which is why this is not the lead story of our show today, because it's not anybody's surprise. Print is going away. I still get a newspaper delivered to my door every day, but uh, so not we. many folks do, uh-huh. right? I do, and but this story, it gives those figures, but it doesn't talk about the offset cost of printing and distributing newspapers and ah. what the difference in advertising revenues, what is it costing? So is there a an economic reason for newspapers to be unhappy about this drop? Maybe not. Maybe not. Paper used to be the second largest expense uh, for a newspaper, after personnel, of course, because you have to hire all those reporters and ad salespeople. But paper is no longer probably the uh, second highest expense. You're not spending as much on paper. You're not, you don't have as many carriers that you have to pay. Gasoline is down. So maybe it's not such a bad thing. So what is it? What is the expense? Well, people. yeah, people, people is primarily it. But the second highest would be, unfortunately, you have to pay for digital advertising. If your advertisers want their ads to get out there to where your stories are, if you're, if the ads go along with your story onto social media, sure. which is how stuff gets distributed, 
you're paying that social media site. So your newspaper is paying Facebook. You're paying Google, mostly. And those payments are actually the what now is really expensive for so, those print so, publications. It's a good idea, Rex. I think that uh, newspapers ought to be paying public radio stations for carrying their material. <laughs> well, and public radio stations should then be paying newspapers for ripping off our stories. You Thank always, you very much. You've always said, you've always, you've always, <laughs> I've heard this before. You've always said that. So there we go. What can you do? Okay, we need to talk about Sarah Palin before this show ends because we don't have much time. And Sarah Palin got kind of a one-two punch, you know. First, the judge says, as a matter of law, he would dismiss her lawsuit against the New York Times. And the jury comes back and says, yeah, as a matter of practice, you didn't prove that there was, as the law requires, actual malice or reckless disregard of the truth. And she's surely going to appeal. Alan, any thoughts on uh, poor Sarah Palin? Well, my bet is that anything that gets to the Supreme Court, which has a negative tilt towards the news media, that court right now is going to be very receptive to. So this is a story that we really ought to be watching. There is a hell of an anti-press attitude among the Trumpistas, and the Supreme Court is now loaded with them. So I think this is a story we ought to be watching carefully. The decision by the judge and by the jury is a one-two punch. It was really good. That's a very strong case the Times has going in. Whether it makes it to the Supreme Court is in doubt because of that. However, rarely have we had a 6-3 conservative court with two members, two of that conservative majority, already on record, already on record is saying this is a law we need to look at. This is a precedent we want to look at. This is a court who has no problem looking at precedents. And if it's easy to knock down Roe v. Wade, mm -hmm. it'll be just as easy to knock down New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964 law. That's why she lost, because she clearly did not meet that standard. But it's the standard itself that's at issue. And what can happen if this gets to the Supreme Court is that they will change it so that only public officials, people elected to office, get the protection that we now have for anybody who's a public figure. Mm -hmm. Palin was not in office at the time. Her popularity was at a low point. She was saying, I'm not a public figure anymore, so I have the right to a, a lower standard of libel. They made a mistake, therefore I can sue them. If that happens, that is a terrible chilling effect on journalism. It makes every story you do about anybody who's not elected a business person who we should be writing about, climate and environmentalist people. If we write about them, we risk being taken to court. Okay, it's can, a terribly important case. Okay, can I ask you for a big favor because of our audience, some of whom have never heard of New York Times versus Sullivan? That is actually what I mentioned. That is yeah. the standard. If you get something wrong, but you did not display actual malice or reckless disregard for the truth, that right. or the, that's the standard established by New York Times v. Sullivan. Right. But only, let, to be figure, clear, yes. for a public official, or elected officials, if you're a regular or a person. public figure, yeah. any public figure. But let us consider, if you go to the Supreme Court with this, I don't think the Supreme no Court's going to grant certiary. I don't think they're going to get there. I hope so. I hope you're right. Uh, but if they do. Let me go down in the other direction. I think because of the who this court is, they will grant cert. We are off the charts on time, oh. folks. So we have to go. Alan Shartok, Barbara Lombardo, Rosemary Mayo, and Rex Smith with gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and you for joining us this week on The Media Project. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. You can listen to our podcast 
podcast, The Media Project, anytime at WAMC.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Readers get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.